Evan okay. Sofro is a nomadic gardener, artist, musician, psychonaut, biophiliac, ecosystem steward, and explorer of freedom. He spent 20, he spent 17 years exploring ecosystem stewardship with a specialization in seed conservation and sustainable bioregionally adapted agriculture and arid lands dry farming. He has worked on and with over a hundred farms in the US, Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Ecuador, and Peru. Former farm manager of Native Seed Search Conservation Farm in Patagonia, Arizona, Onsen Farms, and the River Farm in Southern Idaho. Evan currently resides in the Klamath Siskiyou bioregion. Evan and I share a deep love for our common mentor, Bill McDorman from Native Seed Search and the Heritage Grain Trials. The Promiscuous Tomato Project thrived under Evan's supervision at the river farm in Idaho. We spent many days together planting, nurturing, and harvesting grains and melons. Evan inspired me to learn to play guitar and to have more fun in the garden, even to howl at the full oh. moon. Evan's influence <laughs> deeply influenced my path in life and what I wrote in Land Race Gardening. Okay, welcome, Evan. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It's so nice to be here with y'all today. So tell us about your background. Like there was some words in your bio that were like dotted by vocabulary, psychonaut and biophiliac. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. Oh, oh, a, a deep love of life, of this biological life on planet Earth. Well, my background, where do I begin there? Thank God to my mother. I, you know, as it relates to, to seed conservation and farming, when I was about 15, I was kind of 14, was kind of semi-adopted into a, a family of gardeners and, and renegades and some old pot growers, actually, that really turned me on to a, a, a deep relationship with the natural world and cognizance that we are a part of an ecosystem of 10 million species here on planet Earth, to which in my belief and through my cosmology, it's, you know, we're, we're here as a beautiful piece of biotechnology capable of, of stewarding this wonderful planet of abundance. You know, I, you know, initially had a, a large drive, especially as a rebellious teenager, you know, to fight for freedom and going out to protests. And as the Iraq war, times the second Iraq war, I guess, and, you know, wanted to be deeply involved in activism and grow up. Hopefully, at least I was influenced by people that you know, told me we want to try and make the world a better place while we're here. And then as we start to go out, as I began my journey and trying to understand what that means and how I can do that, you know, first it was going out and protests and rebelling. And at some point you wake up to, to want to be more actively involved and, and work being for something and not as much against something. And although that's mm -hmm. really powerful, you know, as well to stop injustice and oppression as much as we can, but looking at, you know, what can we really do to, to promote and steward the health of the ecosystem of earth really led me towards ecosystem stewardship, restoration, farming. I got into a permaculture gathering when I was 16 years old, Cash Dorman was there, Kelly Weston, some really wonderful earth warriors, if you will. And the world of permaculture really turned me on to like, we have all of these tools available to us to 
make the world a better place for lack of better words, you know, to raise the water table, increase species diversity, um, steward the greater ecosystem. And that was just like, I'm lit. You know, it's like, you can't complain. It's like, we have the power in our hands. You know, if we're privileged enough to, to be free enough to be able to move throughout this life, um, which I am. And so it was like, okay, no more complaining, no more being against something. What are we for? And, you know, at first that was, was farming. You know, did my first full season on a farm in, in Southern Colorado in Man Montrose, Circle A Farms and made a hundred dollars a week and happy as a clam living in a tent. And these wonderful women at Circle A Farms grown about 350 different vegetable varieties for market, market farm at about 6,000 feet in Colorado. High alpine short growing season, but dove into that world and it was a really wonderful introduction to the world of market farming and farming as a whole. And, and you know the, the spirit of how cool it is to work our asses off until the sun goes down and then some and you know all of that. And, so that was kind of like my introduction into the world of agriculture, I'd say, and a little bit of my background there. Yeah. And so how did you go from being introduced to agriculture over to crop breeding? Well, it was really at that permaculture gathering. Bill McDormand was there, and I can credit him pretty um, directly because at that permaculture gathering, Bill McDormand came and gave you know some of his absolutely marvelous speech monologues, if you will, about the history of of the human seed relationship, this 10,000 year old, you know, generally, so we believe relationship between humans and, and, and the seeds of the crops, like we are an extension of their, of their, of their biology, you know, all these wild plants you know, gave up their defenses, um, that most wild seeds have, and bitter alkaloids and spines and thorns and things like that. And they softened up as we built a relationship with them in agriculture. And we kind of became their defenses um, that were participating in this centuries, millennia long ritual, if you will, or ceremony, I guess, of, of a relationship that's been going on every single year since the dawn of agriculture. And before that, um, and, you know, of course the, the big realization of the loss of crop diversity in the last you know, 70 years, 100 years, and getting really inspired about that. But he just, you know, if you've ever listened to Bill McDormand speak about seeds, um, which thousands <laughs> of people have now, it's kind of hard not to be cognizant of it in the, the rest of your journey moving forward. Bill McDormand uh, was one day emailed me and he says i want you to come to a conference and i'll send a driver to come and get you and that was the first time that i actually got off of my farm and went and spoke to somebody about plant breeding and i'm sure that john Cassia had something to do with that decision that got me down here and so so ever since that time bill has been precious to me and and i remember bill gave some corn seed to Wayne Marshall and Wayne grew it out and I went to Wayne's farm and I picked up a whole bunch of corn at Wayne's farm and here's Bill right now coming on hello Bill we're just talking about you speak <laughs> of the angel anyway so so it it's been a beautiful hi Bell it's been a beautiful journey uh, 
and this podcast is seeming like a family reunion and my heart's so full right now. <laughs> so tell us about, are you currently growing and how is that, you know, what's your current status of plant breeding or growing or? Good question. I am, I've, you know, I've gone through in the last few years, I actually took a step back from, from growing almost completely being a little overwhelmed, especially in the world of seeds. It's like, once you start to open up that box, it, you know, it's any crop you want to open up, <laughs> especially once you find out where and, and the privileged access that we have to crop diversity now here in this country, where it's like, okay, I want to look at rice. And it's like, oh, cool. There's 40,000 rice collections, you know, or the spirit of like, you know, we got to explore it all and save it all or, um, sorry, give me just a second here. Sure. Thank you. So, you know, I, myself and a lot of other CD people that I find that get really obsessed in the world of seeds can quickly find themselves buried in like a thousand different projects, <laughs> you know, and, and then finally realizing like, this is my whole life and, and, and not having so much time for relationships and fun and spending time in the wild. So I stepped back for a little while and have kind of refocused. And so now I'm just working on a couple of things, consider myself much more a garden gardener now. Um, and just re-emerging into the world of seeds after a nice hiatus. But this year, what I dove back into, which is uh, projects that I started actually in Idaho at the river farm, is uh, upland rice for northern regions, short season day neutral rice, and exploring, trying to identify varieties that are actually truly day neutral. Lufas was fun. We grew out 13 different lufa varieties of the two different species this year, letting them all promiscuously pollinate, and we'll see how functional all these crosses are. And then this year playing with your cucumbers. Also, this is year four, the fourth generation. I've gotten to grow them out, trailing them over from Idaho out to Southern Oregon. It's just been absolutely delightful. And, and then John Cash's sunflower composites. One of my favorite things that I'm working with, JC put together, you know, a, a mix of an, an untold number of different sunflowers, all the sun, giant sunflowers he could get his hands on. And watching JC out at the river farm tend so sweetly to individual giant sunflower plants, just bring, get them so massive and speak to just like the angelic beckoning of these beautiful <laughs> plants. And I'm over there trying to like farm acreage, you know, and I see JC like transplanting a sunflower in a pot. And I'm like, who does that? That's not going to work. And then just seeing how much <laughs> fun and how much joy he's getting out of like, really intimately interacting with these plants on a small scale. So where I'm like buried in like, you know, 150 different crop crops that I'm growing. So they're like really developing a deep intimate relationship and having, you know, slowing me down. So I was able to get some of those seeds and we grew out thousands of giant sunflowers at Ashland Wellsprings in Southern Oregon, outside of Ashland. And I've been mixing in new varieties there too. And it's just been so much fun. I mean, if there's one actually went out into the desert this year in some some arid lands in southern Idaho and just planted a wash to these giant sunflowers. Uh, I didn't get to go back to see them in full fruition, <laughs> but I was out there like, you know, in it's like eight inches of rainfall, the snow's just melting, and I'm just like, I've got my hori hori, and I'm crawling on my hands and knees up this like little arroyo and putting, you know, 10 seeds in each little hole and burying them back with rocks. And I'm like, okay, at any point. The rodents eat them, the rodents are fed. If they grow up and some bugs eat them, the bugs are fed. If they 
make it through the next level, then, you know, the deer are going to come and munch them. If they make it through that, <laughs> a nice tall stalk and the birds will start landing on them and bringing in, you know, these are really degraded lands by cattle, just like shocked, you know, but then the birds will start landing on them, you know, and bringing in other seed from other places and pooping and bringing in more micronutrients. It's like catalyzing this little restoration project. I'm not so worried about them, you know, getting away if they finally get to, you know, full fruition. And then if they do, the birds are going to get fed and, it's like, oh, it feels so great and non-threatening and beneficial to the landscape, you know? And as John Cashew would say, you know, once those flowers open up, we got angels coming down from the sky. <laughs> so those are a few things that I've been working on. Very small scale. I've actually started at the river farm. We, I started using plastic pots. I went, you know, a lot of my agricultural <laughs> um, passions around arid lands and bioregionally adapted ag, I'd say. So it's like, what can we actually grow with? the water that's, you know, that's really sustainably available to us, the rainwater without diverting, you know, creeks and irrigation or without pumping groundwater, especially in the arid lands. You know, traditionally, we didn't really have agriculture in the West, except for in the Southwest, not in our traditional concept of agriculture. So I was like deep into dry farming, no plastics, no drip lines. And we had amazing, mess, you know, in Arizona, even in Idaho, growing things to, to fruition under those conditions, which, you know, most people don't try because if you're market farming, you need to bring a crop to market. But if you're experimenting and trying to really build, you know, understand what true sustainability looks like to like the extreme, like, you know, net create net ecological creativity, it's fine. You get a, and you don't have to worry about, you know, getting your crop to market. You get to watch plants die and learn from that. But over and over again, they'd succeed. So I'm tangenting just to come back to, that in in southern oregon and with john cashew going out and collecting lots of pots too i just started growing um plant populations in gallon you know five ten gallon containers and with trips and automated trip systems and all of a sudden it's like okay i'm not you know really interfacing with rodents and i've got like new fresh soil and i'm you know bringing in a mass of soil and fertility to a place and i you know can grow less plants more densely in a really easy system to where all of a sudden I'm not like running my body into the ground and yet yielding, you know, with regards to, you know, what, what my objectives are, which is, is, you know, identifying or building relationships with, with different crop species that I want to explore. And I can explore them on a small scale in these pots. We call it pot farming. You can't grow pot in Idaho, but <laughs> we had our pot farm there. So it's, you know, really scaled back. And I, mean, I remember being up in central Idaho too with Thumb Seeds, who was just an amazing renegade Rastaman plant breeder that Bill connected me with. Another, you know, beautiful spirit like yourself, Joseph, that, that Bill brought out of the woodwork because she was living deep in the wilderness for like decades and had lost his ranch out there, had come back out. And Thumbs has is a prolific plant breeder. I mean, the list of what he is stewarding is absolutely amazing. And when I finally got out to his place, he had this like teeny tiny little yard, like a garden. You know, and that time much younger than I'm young now, but I was even younger. I was just took pride in like how much I could farm and how much work we did and how big our yields were. And, and I saw him with like running whole breeding projects with like 12 squash planted in like one hole. And it was like, wow, you've got like a hundred things going on in this teeny tiny little garden very effectively. So it's, I think I've 
may have tangented so much i forgot your original question but <laughs> we're, we're doing great so yeah, yeah. tell us about growing rice right um, like what conditions does it like how much space does it need is it promiscuously pollinating is it mostly inbreeding you know whatever you want to tell us about rice okay so to start with dispelling some of the myths so one of the most people believe you know rice needs to be flooded in patties it's even there's basically two varieties of rice upland and lowland the lowlands are generally grown in flooded patties upland rices are grown more traditionally like our other dry grains direct seeded in the ground or transplanted but in dry soil conditions the big inhibition why we don't grow rice in the north is that most rice is actually photoperiod sensitive and so their flower trigger isn't until once you get into northern latitudes and they won't begin flowering until we're really entering into our frost period there are day neutral varieties of rice and they're grown you know up even into you know central and northern california i haven't explored those much and then the other rice obviously is the are the wild rices which i haven't dove into that world yet and those like you know a small amount of actually running running water or current that'll be next but rice i even got into this i don't i don't know because it's such an extreme it's a warm season annual grain that likes generally long seasons its moisture requirements i would say are absolutely higher than most of what I'd call are more bioregionally adapted grains for northern climates, you know, wheat, barley, oats. So it's it's a little extreme in the, in the other direction of where I've been with with dry farming and bioregionally adapted ag. But looking at John Shirk, who's another person who's done a pretty significant amount of work with with upland rice, I saw he's yielding, you know, up to 17, 20 pounds off 100 square feet, like a 10 by 10 patch. And you know, after exploring, you know, all the crops that I was passionate about up until then, it was like rice was this new thing. And it's like, why not try, you know, and even called the university in Southern Idaho. And it's like, don't even try it. Or like rice won't grow in Idaho. It's, you know, not adapted for X, Y, Z reason. And I was like, okay, someone said, don't try. So I'm going to try. So you rebel. The fast forward, we got 85 varieties of rice from the USDA, from the Grin and grew them out um, hoping to find one that would work in idaho and we just started them out in pots a little bit direct seeded in fields really late planting but i direct seeded them in pots in like june and put them on with just some general overhead and come the frost we had 56 varieties that had matured seed pretty successfully out there so I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I got 56 varieties of rice to play with. Um, floated that into year two and played around with direct seeding, transplanting them a little bit earlier. There's no indication in when you look through all the, the what's the word I'm looking for, the characters, the markers on, uh, anyway, in the, US, in the Grin repository, you can't look up what varieties are day neutral, at least not the way I know. So I went to days to Anthesis and found the fastest flowering rices, mm -hmm. um, but some of the fastest flowering in from where they grew it out um, didn't flower until November in Idaho. So the next thing we did was tried planting some about a month earlier in Idaho. But we had late frost, it even took a little bit of frost, and we mature, I was able to mature seed again off of almost all those varieties, but our yields were, it was like 10% successful germination. And I think part of that is because it doesn't really appreciate the really co cool 
conditions when it's pollinating are really really cold nights or the humidity from overhead from trying to save it from like a, a later frost or something so we had about like 10 percent um successful pollination on it um, but enough to get some more seed you know rice is more outcrossing than say wheat you know they recommend an isolation of about 10 feet you like i i like you <laughs> um, are not nearly as concerned with with isolation and and maintaining, you know, the purity of individual varieties as much as attaining populations of functional diversity. So, like, mm-hmm. if they cross, let them cross. I'm not, you know, looking to combine rice with uniform dry down in, in, in northern climates. Right. But I am looking for varieties of rice that we can grow up here that are productive, that maybe with gray water outflow or, you know, a 10 by 10 stands, not much. You know, it's like a lot, you know, the water, it's a lot less than flushing your toilet throughout mm-hmm. the year to, to grow a, a, a stand of rice and a 20 pound yield is pretty damn good. So fast forwarding again, brought them out to Oregon. And this year I just took 13 of those varieties, some of the best producers. And I started them in early April and put them in 20 gallon pots and put them on a little drip system. And this year, because I started them almost you know a month and a half earlier in Idaho, than Idaho, we were harvesting in early September. There were a few varieties that by the end of August were like done. Nice. And so at least of these 13, I didn't go back through and analyze the, the, the full collection of over 50, but these, we got a hundred percent seed set, absolutely prolific. And I haven't cleaned it. So I'm not sure what the yields are, but of what I can say pretty assuredly right now are day neutral varieties. And we grew out a, a, a quite a few from John Shirk also, and he's done extensive, you know, searching through through different varieties of rice for his climate. But these yielded and performed better than the than the ones we got from him. And some of them are just you know like G three two, you know, to <laughs> know much about the history of them, but other than it came from right. Kazakhstan or you know northern Japan or um, or Russia, so. That's a little bit on that, you know, as far as the conditions, I'm not stretch them into arid production. Mm-hmm. They're very tolerant of heat, you know, and where they grow in California, you know, in flooded patties, but so that's cooling the, the soil, which is significant, but it, you know, the temperatures there hit like 110 degrees during pollination. So um, they're more tolerant of the heat than the cool. I haven't been able to distinguish, you know, fully in all of these wetter upland and wetter lowland but I haven't grown any of them in flooded conditions and I'm getting really good pollination set. I think just consistent moisture and especially during pollination, they seem to be most fragile, like, you know, most plants. And what was the other one that I was going to add? Yeah, that's some notes, <laughs> notes on, the, on the rice experience. So, Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in the Heritage Grain Trials? Oh, that was so <laughs> much fun. So I've been blessed by the love of Bill McDormand and Bell Star's partner, John Kasha, Leanne, the crew with Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, the former, what was another story, but they have done amazing work in bringing together um, teams of growers to dive in and assess and revive old crop varieties, um, particularly with the Heritage Grain Trials. I got to be part of, you know, a number of different farms across the West, the Rocky Mountain West, trialing out 
oats, barley's, rye's. And really what we were doing was just, we had, you know, each site had, how many do we, I think we went through like 25 different varieties, at least that's what we were working with. And we replicated our, our, we were growing the same varieties in different bioregions within the Rocky Mountain West and just assessing them for, you know, yields and flavor, you know, hopefully after, you know, the milling process later on and just, you know, some of it was general observation. Some of it was very specific and weighing out yields relative to, you know, our, our plot sizes and our, and our agricultural techniques, but it was so much fun and, you know, going through and taking, you know, varieties that you're really starting with a handful of seeds, you're getting a packet, you know, of something that, at one point, you know, the only reason we still have it is because it was it was functional within a culture for thousands of years, you know, being saved every year up until that point. And now it's like, okay, here we've got a few packets because some beautiful person cared enough in these times where maybe they're not even grown out, you know, consistently year after year. Maybe they're not feeding a whole culture, but they have relevance, you know, somewhere or for somewhere, or, or maybe they don't anymore for our culture, but we'll find out. And through it, you know, as we started diving in, it's like there's some really wonderful, great old grain varieties that taste delicious and perform well. Some were not, you know, we had some barley varieties that were just like toppling over and you're like, okay, I don't, you know, I'm not sure what I'm doing or maybe it's just compared to the other barleys we're growing, it's, you know, it's not really functional for me, but, but if nothing else, we get to grow up some seed stock and store it away and, and maybe, you know, another decade down the road or something, someone else will figure out its intrinsic characteristics for their specific bioregions. One of the most fun things for me within it too, is just seeing all of the grain varieties planted out next to each other. Cause you know, you look at a single field of wheat and it gets a little boring, you know, that's like, okay, it's not uniform. You know, at least when you grow a field of corn, especially old land races, you're like opening up everyone. You're like, it's like Christmas, like what's going to be inside. You know, you really get to interact with the plant more. But seeing a spread of, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 different grain varieties next to each other, each with their own unique, you know, inflorescence and, and the spikelets are not, you know, the scene that feel, I think that, that was the one you were working with, right? Yes. Like this mega elephant head, you know, and it's like giant grains. And so, and yeah, seeing them in the fall and the light one next to the other is just like, just a cinemagraphic masterpiece like wow uh -huh. this is so beautiful that was that's actually i think i sent you that video we did the big triskelion spiral uh -huh. and there's a video of on it it's our rmsa the heart and so we had that was one of the we had multiple grow outs and replicates of the heritage grains trial on on the on the river farm out there but we planted, I think it was, you know, a hundred foot plus across, like you could only really see it from a drone, but it was a three armed, you know, a Triskelion, beautiful symbol of, you know, infinity and the Holy Trinity and all the other yeah, trees we can weave into it. We'll put that in the, in the show notes and social media. Yeah. It's just beautiful. Really fun. Yeah. So, um, um so that, that heritage grain trials is still ongoing. Leanne, could you? jump in and tell us how to get connected to that. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. And just a shout out to all y'all who were so critical to make that trials happen. Evan and Joseph, you two really provided a lot of seed for the trials at the onset. And then we have a 
Chris Hardy on, on here, who's been continuing this. And that to me, that's just near, and it's just incredible that it's still continuing. We are not actively doing the trials anymore, but you are able to get grains through the Heritage Grain Alliance. And Bill's been sending out grains in small packets. We're back to the small packets, though. We do have some larger varieties of what we called the top 20. And we'll have our top 20 manual if people want to learn about what top 20 we that the ones that really came up rose to the surface um, in kind of our first rounds of of grain growing. We did further research search and grow outs on those. And so if anybody wants larger quantities of the top 20, we can provide that as well. But the trials themselves have kind of been on hold, but we keep uh-huh. hearing from people that are growing them. And so I guess in their own way, they're continuing onward, but thanks. Thank oh, you. Yeah. yeah, it's if I can add to it's it's an interesting thing, you know, working in the world of seed conservation, it's, you know, most of the work is being done for free by passionate, sometimes obsessed farmers and gardeners and seed stewards. Finding funding for these things is an art, which, you know, Bill and Bell and Leanne, John Cash have done wonders for getting us support when we want to dive in passionately to these things. But then sometimes, you know, things shift, the funding dries up, nonprofit world's tricky. But even in those two years, like Leanne said, it's like, okay, we went through assessed, we could have maybe drawn this out even longer, you know, gone through more varieties. But even in that time, like Wilder Jones of King's Crown Organics, wonderful, awesome young farmer who's taken over his dad's operation in Southern Idaho. He he grew out some of the grains too, and they were like, "Hey, this ryegrass grass goes like six foot tall, the Sangosti." And last I talked to him, he's like, "Yeah, we just combined like you know six tons of it or something." So, you know, one of the wonderful benefits of you know even the the work that we did do, all the work that we could have maybe done more, but it has trickled out. And then you come back and you realize, oh, people grasp these; they have relevance in someone's farming operation now. It's it's out there now. It, you know, someone has a relationship to it and it's going to thrive. Thank you. So we're all ready for the bonus round questions. So Evan, if you could work wonders with any species, what would you do? What would I do? Oh, <laughs> I would continue to do my best to inspire the human species to awaken to a deeper relationship of stewardship of this beautiful ecosystem of Earth. It's, you know, in, in the world of diversity and we're, we're on, I haven't been to the other planets, but I really like this one. <laughs> I won't arrogantly say it's the best, but, you know, this is an ecosystem of, of diversity and the spirit of diversity is that one thing isn't really any better than the other. We all have intrinsic characteristics, we're multifunctional, um, but the experience of human being is really cool because it's like we can really see the big picture and and we can identify the relationships of interest specifically between all of these different species. And we can participate in very clearly in activities that are, are in alignment with what the spirit of what I see on earth is, is doing, which is living free, harming less and increasing diversity, increasing resilience. There's truly beauty and intelligence woven into every manifestation of life on this planet and and that which we call non-living. And we can communicate and interface with all of them. And we can exist in all of these different bioregions. Like we're an awesome species, but I feel like we are like biologically wired 
to love and to steward this this ecosystem. So, so if I could work on one species, it's definitely the human being because almost everything else that is living on this planet, you know, whether it's killing or not, that's another question, but is in a constant <laughs> process of increasing the resilience of the system. And so I, I'm going to go with humans and, and waking us up to the, the beauty of that experience. It's just, it's fun. This is a, this is a, a loving planet of abundance when we, when we wake up to it. I, I love that idea. Landrace human Grex. Just throw yeah. them all out in the paddock and come back in a hundred years and see how much they've mixed up. Well, <laughs> and it's happening now, you know, it's like we're all traveling all over the place. We're not nearly as, as confined to the specific location. So we're, we are in the, we are in the the mass compositing of of the human genome right now, and and I, I like to think things are things are actually getting progressively better and more peaceful, and and we're just right now at the the edge of of some really great awakening where people are are really starting to it's becoming a lot cooler right now to be engaged in holistic systems and ecosystem stewardship. Um, definitely in the time that, you know, y'all have been alive and even in the, my short life of, of <laughs> involvement, I'm like, I mean, you just look at the farmer's markets for the organic farms or, or the, how many more seed companies we have right now, restoration organizations than when I was 18, you know, it's like when I first started farming, it was like, what the hell are you doing? And now it's like, farmers are cool, you know, organic, local. These are all like these buzzwords that are. You know, people are catching on. It feels really good. Well, that leads into the next question. What is your vision for the future of food in your community? Well, in my community, I, I'm very nomadic, so I move around a lot. But I, you know, I'm passionate about bioregionally adapted systems. I'm a big proponent of eco-regionalization and re-identification with a place. Let me bring this back just a moment to, you know, the concept of land race, which is, you know, obviously a big theme here. Um, you know, land races, as opposed to conventionally bred varieties, hybrids, you know, pure lines, land races are varieties that have been grown in an echo region in a specific location, really, for you know, any number of years leading on to century or even millennia, where the predominant selection characteristic is its adaptation to natural influences when the frost period is the specific you know geographical signatures of or geological signatures of the soil of the climate and then the people you know these crops have relevance so you know what are people eating and what really grows best because back in the day you didn't have seed companies you couldn't get a hold of whatever you want every single farmer every you know agriculture was saving their own seeds and so at the end of the, at the end of the year what you end up with you're not you know not to say some of these weren't intentionally selected upon really the dominant selection characteristic is whether it actually functions with the bioregionally available resources necessary for life to thrive so you know, our cultural diversity as human beings, when we look at indigenous culture, the real spirit of what indigenous is, is, is it's being of, of a place. It means that I'm eating and consuming that which is around me. It's making my body, my bones. It's informing um, my worldview, my psychology, my spirituality. And, you know, down to what we wear and how we build our homes and what we're praying to and what we hold sacred is 
first and foremost has to do with where specifically we're living. You know, we're in a globalized, you know, experience right now where we have access to all of these, you know, my body's built up of food from China and, you know, Africa, wherever, every, you know, all of these resources that we're getting. So my body is built up of the whole planet. And that's a beautiful thing too. But there's a real beauty too. And especially when we look at, you know, sustainability of systems with ecology and in consideration, um, our adaptation to the place that we are, both for our food and for every aspect of our life, I think is, you know, what I'd like to see more of, and not just on farms, but it's reintegration with the wildlife, with our game species, you know, out here in Oregon and really along this West Coast, there was, you know, the way we look at agriculture traditionally is like, you know, it, you know, agriculture means turning the soil. It's, it's, you know, we think of, you know, bears cultivation. It's not to oversimplify it, but, um, but, you know, the, the, what's been known for a long time, but when we say what we're realizing now, what we really mean is that, you know, Western intellectual academic paradigm is waking up to that. These ecosystems have been stewarded, not in a traditional agricultural sense, but in a, in a, people have been cultivating and interfacing with the wild out here for millennia. They were burning forests. They were increasing oak savannas. They were cultivating deer, basically, and oaks for the acorns and the flowers that would come with it and tending to the wild. You know, we're not in a traditional agricultural landscape out here, but there's so much abundance. You know, it's changed now with population density, how many people it can support. But but when we do that, you know, farming farming is hands down the most destructive thing that the human being has ever done to the planet is leaving wide swaths of bare exposed earth. So what I'd like to see for my community actually is, and any community that I'm in, is actually transitioning more farms into ecosystems with a lot of consideration of the greater ecology of the other, you know, thousands of species that exist in any bioregion and these medicines and these foods that are abundantly around us and a little bit less of a focus just on our agricultural crops. Because as I go back and forth and as a part of my hiatus from farming, it was like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm deep in these seed relationships and these cultures picking up off of cultures of, you know, and, and the grace of the hard work of others for thousands of years with these agricultural species. Then I'm like, hold on, these guys are also have been our, our millennia old partners in destroying the planet. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I would like to see you know, more gardening, less farming, and a lot of rewilding. Yeah. You know, farming in particular is, is, is the cultivation of crops for market, to, you know, the production of commodities. I'm growing something to sell. Subsistence agriculture is what the majority of the agricultural heritage of, of Earth has been about. You know, we're growing food for our families. You know, we don't need the same kind of uniformity. We don't need the same kind of yields, if you will, because what we're doing is we're actually growing what works for our family and what works best for the bioregion and the lifestyle that we want to be living, um, farming and finding economic profitability and, you know, feeding populations of non-farming people is actually really difficult and detrimental. You know, we look at the abundance of food that we are currently producing you know, on a caloric level, people have gone through quite often and, you know, say, okay, by the calories currently being produced, we could feed this world population, you know, two and a half times over 
don't quote me on that, but something generally. In there. But, you know, that's with agriculture being how it is, which is currently, you know, largely industrial and largely destructive. So, you know, what I envision on some level, because farming for market is really difficult. I've been very blessed with not having to be a market farmer. I've been blessed with um, contracts and research and working with nonprofits and, you know, working at Native Seed Search. It wasn't about getting anything to market. It was about doing the work of seed stewardship and conservation, repatriation, and doing our best to try and reconnect and support with indigenous communities and repatriate old varieties. So, so as to say, for a tangent too much, that I like to think, I've, I've actually gotten into the, starting to research into the biosynthesis of foods and fats and proteins, because I think that at some point in the near future with our populations as they are, I'd like to see the vast, you know, probably like 50% of farmland, agricultural land actually just be rewilded so that we can support the greater ecosystem of earth, let the people in the rural areas, you know, if I, ideally I'll just speak from our bioregion, be tending the wild more, gardening, you know, very carefully, you know, in, in my ideal world, would be very carefully considering where we have open soil cultivation and and encourage people who are living in the massive metropolitan areas to eat biosynthesized food that will hopefully soon be produced in a more ecologically considerate manner than conventional agriculture probably taste great look great you know make you know your your fake chicken and your fake beef and and you know and rewild if people want to live in that deep of disconnection from the greater ecosystem and what it would really take to continuancy of 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 a biodiverse planet earth you know then let them let them eat hip good tasting you know bodybuilding synthesized <laughs> foods and out here in the wild we can you know we can hunt and fish and take down the dams and restore the rivers and you know bring back bring back old growth forest and grow abundant gardens and feed people in a way that's not so destructive to our minds bodies and spirits in the earth Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Shane. So let's open it up to questions from anybody want to say something to Evan or ask any questions? Well, you, in Evan's description, I think one description was left out, the one that he, he inspired me and that I'm now descri describing myself as, as a regenerative earth artist. Evan, that's, that was the phrase that you coined that was so perfect, so perfectly described, you know, the, what we were doing at the river farm was not only doing good work ecologically and, you know, for the seeds and for the people, but we were also doing it in a very creative and artistic manner, which puts a whole different kind of energy into the, the work. So I want to thank you for thank you for that, and and Joseph, I want to give a shout out to you for spreading the word so well on your podcasts or what are you, what do you call are you an in, are you a seed influencer now, <laughs> you know with your with your YouTube channel and spreading the word and just being so humble and ever evolving is really an inspiration too. And then, you know, I could go right down the list to Leanne for picking up the heritage grain trials and being bringing the seed alliance to a new level when she was the executive director and of course with bill and bill and all that the history that we've all had with them is just you know it's it's overwhelming to think about it really but it's 
but Joseph, thank you for bringing everybody together on this. And Evan, keep up the good work. We we'll look forward to your next visit. Oh, love you, JC. Thank you, John Kasia. Heart's full today, definitely. <laughs> I have a question for Evan and more generally. So as an Australian, I look at your green database of seeds with like absolute envy. When I first started on this journey, there was something equivalent in Australia, much smaller, uh, a government-run seed database, and it was sold off to a private company shortly after I discovered that it existed. <laughs> so, and our, with our quarantine laws, it's really difficult to get that kind of diversity into our trials. So do you have any sense about how long the Grin database might actually be widely accessible to amateur breeders in the US? I... You know, Bill might be able to speak to this better than me, but I can say that, you know, as I, I don't have any academic, you know, credentials right now. Like when I applied for the rice, the first response I got was no, you know, if you're not a university, if you're not a researcher, we're not sending you seeds, which was, you know, fine. It's like I can go and find somebody else to co-sign on with me. But I think that is the general response for a lot of requests as for, you know, for amateur plant breeders, because you know, at this point, it's it's underfunded, it's understaffed, there's a lot of seeds sitting, you know, some of the seeds I'm growing out is like 60, 70 years old, you know, they don't have the resources to be regenerating these populations. So I, I understand their um, hesitation at this point, to be distributing populations that, you know, if, if they can't ensure that it's going to be replenishing or, you know, going to specific work that, you know, their directives want to support. But shortly after I got another letter that said, you know, send us the $80, you know, $80, a dollar packet and the seeds showed up and, and then I requested more and I got the same response. No, you know, we're not sending out, you know, seeds unless you're a researcher and, and then the seeds showed up. So I'm not sure for how long, <laughs> but I can, I, but I have an idea <laughs> as far as how to get access to a lot of these, what we still do have and how to get them mm. out into the world. I... But Maybe it's just a warning from Australia. It's like with the way government dysfunction can just pop up out of nowhere, use the resource while you can get it into yeah. the field and into the hands of people who are going to to treasure it and share it because these, right. these resources are, are, are once in a, a thousand years come together. Yeah, well, so check this out. And yes, absolutely. You know, that we have truly privileged access to agrobiodiversity here in the United States. It is amazing. You know, and like you said, I think few people don't recognize just how, how what a privilege that is. I, I worked down in Costa Rica, was flown down there by a family that wanted to influence the availability of seeds and seed production down there. They recently passed a law, a list, and this is seven years ago now, that it's a specific list of crop varieties that you can grow down there. If they're not on there, you're not going to have access to them. But Costa Rica and a lot of Latin America now for conventional ag, you know, they import 90% of their seed stock and from the U.S. and China and other places. Similarly, when we looked into getting seeds in there, it was like, okay, I send one packet of tomato seeds in there. I needed to be phytosanitary inspected in the field in the U.S. And then, you know, after I get that inspection, I send it through and they're going to fumigate the seed with fungicide and then we get it down there and then they're going to have to grow it out in their greenhouses and assess it, you know, and with it's it makes sense. You know, I, I understand and I respect it because the agricultural industries are precious the transmission of potential you know viral infections and things like that into agriculture could be detrimental but it's a huge hassle and it's a pain in the ass so it's like okay 
what tomatoes do we want to grow down here? Because I can only get two varieties. And up in the States, there's like a thousand to pick from. But I'm going to have to go through and have all of these assessed and isolated. And it's going to be a multi-year process. That being said, when, you know, this this thing that a handful of us are really passionate about and this fringe part of the seed world that's okay with not keeping things isolated. And I'm grateful for everyone who has so that, and that's why we you know, still have so much unique diversity and intact cultural narratives around these things, but mix them together. You can take a hundred tomato varieties or a thousand tomato varieties or the entire you know, collection of available biodiversity, agrobiodiversity within any specific species or variety um, that we want to work with and mix them together. And all of a sudden, you know, when you move through that phytosanitary, it's still going to have to get fumigated and grown out. But now you have one population of tomatoes that contains the entire available stock of genetic diversity in, in, in the tomato line. And then let people pick back out through it. You know, you won't know what is what. You may not know the specific story of its heritage at that point, although you could, you know, go through and assess and re-identify. But when it comes down to having functional access to diversity, you grow that out in a field and you'll know real quick. It's like, okay, just put the thousand varieties out in a field and invite, you know, farmers and gardeners and growers to go through and say, hey, there you go. Pick, pick the ones that stand out to you. You know, it's most of the selection criteria, which we're looking for too, in, in unless we're, you know, looking for the kind of uniformity that intensive production and market production requires, you can, you know, just go through with your eyes and your mouth and taste your way through and look. And the plants that are most adapted to your region are, are going to stand out without extensive assessment and characterization. <laughs> Joseph, can I make a yeah. comment? Yes, please do. I just want to answer the other question. I, w I was asked to be on a committee. I was in India at the ninth session of the Global Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources. And there's a huge call worldwide from the world's small farmers to get access to their seeds in the world's gene banks, they call it. And and so I got I sat down with the with several others and the head of the whole Seagar system, which is the 11 big gene banks, including Fort Collins. And their they their mandate is to be to distribute seeds to people, whoever it is. There should be no limits to who they distribute seeds are to. And so what happens in Fort Collins is that that becomes budget delimited. They don't have people to do it, you know, and it's a hassle for them. And that's why, Evan, they say no to small mm -hmm. people. But I can tell you that globally, this is being worked on and there's going to be a series of workshops and, and webinars created so that you can watch and learn how to access the seeds in these seed banks. They take it very seriously that these are the people's seeds. They've basically been stolen and they understand they're being viewed that way in these big gene banks. And so they're taking it seriously that they have to open up. And so it may be that we hit another golden period for people in Australia, say, and others to be able to have access to seeds. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. I, I, I would suggest um, combining those ideas for these organizations where there's a logistic overhead in picking out like 10 packets out of a thousand that are in the database. 
perhaps they could look at generating um, mixtures for distributing to small farmers. So you get mm -hmm. one packet of a particular species, but it's a blend of like a hundred different species which have a particular maybe climate zone that draw, draws them together. Right. You pick the right mixture yep. for your climate, your, yeah. your end of the range of that species. And You're, that could possibly yeah, make I, it, yeah, that could make yeah. it logistically possible for these organizations to handle requests from small farmers. Leanne and I were on a call with the with a representative of CIMIT, the Center for Wheat and Maize in Mexico, about that very topic. And at first it seemed like we were coming from outer space, but as we talked more, the idea was starting to land. So I think it's just a matter of time, I hope. But you're right on. And that's that's the best comment. And and practically too, you know, it's you know, as you you mentioned, you know, for a specific bioregion, there's also characteristics like, you know, how you know how long does it take for this thing to flower? As we got, we were doing mass composites of melons at the river farm, and luckily Joseph was there too because I just got like every packet of melons that I could get my hands on, and Joseph was there when we when we liberated their individuality and do a big family <laughs> reunion. But he was like, oh, by the way, that melon's bitter as hell. <laughs> yeah. And so once you, excuse me, there are certain characteristics. It would be nice to group things um, practically to ensure that you're not getting, you know, what we could call like deleterious traits in there. You know, there's, you know, the not every melon has to be sweet. There's other purposes. We brought some melons back to the Sierra Tarahumara and there were these teeny tiny little watermelons and they grew them out and we're like why like why are these even here why why were people saving them they're not really that sweet they're small you know no one's going to prefer this over the watermelons we could get our seeds we could get our hands on and then and an elder in that community came out and was like oh no we make this pepillon a blend of seeds and this was actually a watermelon that just produced a prolific amount of seeds three different colors inside and it was toasted and they were ground and used as a, a spice but if i were to mix that into the population of the rest of you know delicious sweet watermelons which is what most people are going for in a couple generations those traits are going to be you know pretty prolific in there and maybe not what we're desiring so you know, I think I I dream, daydream sometimes of, you know, we start with taking every variety that we can and maybe for a year, two years in a few locations within any crop species, growing them out and just assessing their basic characteristics and then group and then distributing them, as you're saying, into, you know, functional composites so that we have as much diversity as is practical, not as, as much diversity as is possible within each population. All right, Evan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Final opportunity for an end plug, Evan. How can people get in touch with you or learn more about the work that you do? Right now, I, I could offer up my email. I do have a social media, but it's been inactive for a few years, which is Regenerative Earth Arts. That's on Instagram. And I'll be re-emerging next spring with more of a, an online presence. But you're welcome to share my email also which is Evan Sofro, oh, which one am I using? Earthincorporated.net. And I'll be checking that. I'm going to actually be going into a retreat for the next like four months, but I'm happy to uh, communicate via email. Um, but right now I really don't have much of a public presence. So, you know, if you want to shoot me an email or if you happen to be in 
in Southern Oregon and want to go on a, a walk in the forest, that would be the best way to, to be in touch with me. And then uh, I keep in touch with, you know, John Cash, Leanne and Bill McDormand. So they, they, they usually know how to get a hold of me if, if you really need to find me. Thank you for coming out of the woods to talk with us, Evan. Oh, I'm not. I'm, I'm in the woods talking with you, but all right. Um, Th but thank, thank you for coming so edge for, of for the, the internet invitation. to talk with us. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, Joseph. And thank, thank you, everyone. Thank you for all the work yeah. you do, and you've truly been an inspiration for me. And I'd like to express my appreciation also to Anna and Shane for the technical support for this podcast, and. Till next time, beautiful people.